I'm interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey everybody, I am back and better than ever. Welcome back to I'm Interested. For those of you who are new to this podcast, I welcome you. For those of you who are with me two years ago, it is delightful for me to have you back. Uh, let me explain quickly um, what exactly this podcast is. So two years ago, I had the idea to do a series of long-form interviews in which I just talked to people I find interesting about the things that make them interesting to me. And some of them came from the world of sports, and some of them did not. I interviewed Danny Meyer, the restaurateur. I interviewed Harlan Coben, the mystery writer. I interviewed James Murray, who was Murr from the Impractical Jokers. And then a lot of sports people, and we did long-form interviews. And I can tell you that um, I was delighted with the reaction that we got. People really have, to this day, come up and tell me how much they enjoyed those interviews. So I've been pretty busy since then, launching a TV show, launching a new radio show. But I really wanted to do this again this fall. And so the theme for this fall's season is going to be the legendary voices of sports. I will be interviewing in long form the legendary chroniclers and voices of sports. And I couldn't be more thrilled that my first guest is Vern Lundquist, from whom you will start to hear in just a minute. And Vern, you don't need me to tell you who he is. He's a legend, he's an icon, he's a gentleman, and I couldn't be more thrilled to have Vern Lundquist with me here today for this first edition of Season 2 of I'm Interested, and we'll get to him after I tell you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, quickly, I want to make sure you're aware of my new TV project. It's called Better Days, B-E-T-T-O-R. If there's a game, someone's betting on it. It's a wonderful gambling show, but it's really not about gambling as much as it is about gamblers. You have all of these gamblers who tell me their first-person stories. Some of them are glorious. Some of them are disastrous it's about the extraordinary things that happen to gamblers when they win and when they lose. They tell you the stories themselves. You can stream new episodes every Thursday on ESPN+. Plus. Again, the show is called Better Days, and I really hope you will check it out and let me know what you think. I couldn't be more proud of this show. With that said, okay, let me get to the main event. It's time for Vern. This is the second incarnation of my podcast, I'm Interested. We did a season of this two years ago for ESPN in which I interviewed people that I was interested in uh, and just talked to them about the things that I thought were interesting. And I was delighted with the reception. I've been very busy since then, uh, getting my TV show off the ground and now starting a new radio show. But I decided I wanted to do another season this fall in which I will talk to the legendary voices of sports. All I've ever wanted to be in my entire life from the time I was a little kid was a sports announcer. I remember telling my grandmother, my grandmother who lived to be 96 um, mm. when I was young, that I wanted to be a sports announcer. And she said, and I quote, Michael, why can't you be something good? So that's, that's where it began. Uh, but I have always admired the people who have done this and um, at the highest levels. It's all I've ever wanted to do. It's all I ever wanted to be. And so I can't begin to describe how excited I am to begin this season for the very first of these interviews 
to be with one of the truly legendary voices in the history of American sports, Vern Lundquist. And I can tell you that I, in doing research for this, my research for this interview took about 45 seconds. And, and the only hard part was narrowing it down because I can't impose upon Vern for five hours of his time. So first and foremost, Vern, welcome and thank you very much for taking this time. Greeny, uh, I'm honored. Uh, I exchanged emails with you and a phone message and really thrilled to be a part of this. I'm a longtime fan of yours. Look forward to this, how, however much time you choose to spend. Okay, well, that's impossible for me to believe. So that's wonderful. Thank you very much. So here's what I decided to do. I, I went through the different parts of, of the, the many things you've done and the, the moments that you've been a part of that you have called that every single person listening to this will remember. And I thought we could just go through a few of them and we could just share some of your recollections of the event. So the first thing that I found and something that I will admit I did not know, I'm sure many people listening to this will know, was that you were the play-by-play -play voice of the Dallas Cowboys from 1967 through 1984, which I had not known. But that was the era in which I grew up. The 70s was when I first fell in love with sports as a boy and then a young teenager. The Dallas Cowboys were America's team. The popularity of that team, I think, had as much impact on the extraordinary growth we have seen in the popularity of professional football in my lifetime as literally anything. So I would love to start the conversation there. Tell me about being around the Tom Landry, Roger Staubach, Tony Dorsett, Drew Pearson, Dallas Cowboys of the 70s, America's team that I believe transformed pro football in this country. I joined the Cowboy Radio Network as the pregame, halftime, and postgame host. And I actually was at the Ice Bowl game uh, in my role as pregame and postgame, essentially. And one quick anecdote about that, Vince Lombardi was the coach of the, of the Packers. I called Chuck Lane, uh, and, and times were just so dramatically simpler. I called Chuck Lane, who was the PR guy of the Packers. And I said, I know Coach Lombardi is going to meet with us, the Dallas media. And there were six writers and me. I was the only television guy on the plane, and I had a photographer with me. Would he be willing, after his meeting with Dallas media alone, would he be willing to go down on the field and do a short interview? And Chuck said, I'll talk to him. I'll get back to you. Called me, said, you're on with Lombardi. Lombardi came in wearing a casual shirt and, tie, and no tie, no coat. When the meeting with Dallas media only was over, I said, uh, coach, I'm from Dallas, Vern Lundquist, and I think you've agreed to go down to chat with me. He said, not gonna do it. I looked at Chuck desperately and I said, what? He said, I don't do television unless I'm dressed in a coat and tie. And I said, coach Lombardi, if it'll make you feel better, I'll strip down to my skin. <laughs> and he said, I'm just not going to do it. He got up and walked out. And, and uh, I, I pleaded, which I said, you got to go after him. So he did. Five minutes later, Lombardi walked back in and he was as close as he got to gracious. And he said, okay, my mistake. I didn't realize you had set this up. So we go down, take the elevator down, walk in the field. It was 40 degrees, 35 degrees. This was a, a Friday. And the topic 
Mike of the interview was his pride in the installation for, I think, $25,000 of an electric grid underneath the grass that was going to ensure that this field would never, ever freeze. Well, <laughs> and we shipped that back, and it aired on Channel 8 television in Dallas on Saturday night. And my wake-up call at the Northland Hotel Sunday morning was, good morning, it's 7.30, and the temperature is 13 below zero. <laughs> so that began the day. It's an extraordinary story. Well, Vince Lombardi in his shirt in his shirt sleeve <laughs> is about as good as it gets. Okay, so let me run through some things. So now, so now we get to the. So tell me, he's such a a legendary figure, and so much has happened since. What was Tom Landry like? I got along with him very, very well, but it was from a distance. He was the man in the hat. He didn't allow himself to get too close to his players to the executives. He had a routine, Mike, in every charter. And I, over the years I spent with the organization up until 83, when I was full-time at CBS and had to let it go, let it go. I probably took 150 charter flights with them. I just estimated. And his routine never changed. He would sit first class on a brand of charter. And he always sat in three E and F in front of Gilbrandt and Ernie Stautner and behind uh, Clint Murkison, the owner, and whichever woman to whom he was married at the time. <laughs> there, it was like uh, Patty Pace's song, Changing Partners. Uh, <laughs> and, and Tex and his wife sat right across from the galley in first class. And here was a win or lose, heartbreaker or, or uh, uh, runaway with a victory. He and Alicia, and she was wonderful. She's still living, by the way. He would sit down. He always on the aisle, be served first, airplane food. And he would always have one glass of Chardonnay. I've never, ever saw him take more than one glass. Uh, he finished before the rest of us had been served almost. He would get up and amble back. He would take off his coat in, on the plane, mm -hmm. but never the tie. And he would amble back to the back of the plane and work his way forward. And he didn't talk to every player, but he start. He would talk to the Bob Lillies and the Roger Staubachs and the Leroy Jordans and the Cornell Greeks uh, and, and Mel Renfro's and then work his way back, win or lose. And then he would sit down, buckle up again his seatbelt, and he would open a paperback Louis L'Amour novel. Great Western writer, I'm told. But he must have written 150 books because Tom, <laughs> and, and that never, ever, I never saw it change. When I retired and went to CBS full time, uh, I'd been on the air in Dallas for 17 years. And I announced my retirement at the end of December in 83 to go full time with CBS. And the station decided to hold a party uh, in an adjacent studio. I knew it was coming, and I learned the story later. One of Texas assistants, a guy named Joe Bailey, went into Coach Landry. They had lost the day before in the playoffs to the Los Angeles Rams. And he said, uh, are you and Alicia going down to Vern's 
a goodbye party at Channel 8. And Tom allegedly looked at Joe and he said, darn right we are. In mm. times like this, I need all the friends I can find. <laughs> and I walked in and there were 150 people, something like that. And right in front, Tom and Alicia Landry. And I've got a photograph of the floor of us upstairs in my wife's office. Whenever I visit up there, I, I look at it and smile because Tom was smiling. And uh, I really cared for him. It'd be too much to say I loved him. He was not approachable for that kind of affection. Believe me, Mike, he kept a distance from his players. It was, I don't think they share the same warm remembrance of him that I do. That was the impression that I had of him, even just as a kid watching the team. And, and then before we move to any other subjects, one of your most famous calls, and I'm sad to say we don't have the permission to use any of these, but came in the Super Bowl yeah. when Jackie Smith dropped what would have been a sure touchdown. And you very famously said, bless his heart. He's got to be the sickest man in America. Now, did that just come out of your mouth? Yes, it did. I've been so blessed over this rather lengthy career to have been present when significant sporting events occur. And then the challenge for us as broadcasters is to be equal verbally to that moment. And I'll give you a prelude about Jackie Smith. Texram got into a, the purchase of a marina in Key West, Florida, and his partners, believe it or not, I guess the NFL allowed this back in the 70s. His partners were Pete Rozelle and Frank Gifford. <laughs> and they owned a marina in Key West. Well, part of that deal was the sharing of a 48-foot yacht. And so Tex... <laughs> flew to Key West and had his boat captain move the yacht up to the intercoastal. And the yacht was parked outside uh, the Pier 66 Hotel in Fort Lauderdale, which is where the team was, was uh, staying. And we had developed the ability, this was 76, I guess. We had just developed the ability to go live point to point. So we were doing our 10 o'clock newscast from Fort Lauderdale back to Dallas. And our anchors were there. Uh, the weatherman stayed home, but I asked Tex if I could use his yacht as a location for my part of the sportscast. And this was on a Wednesday night. And I had Jackie Smith and his wife as my guests. So they all they had to do was saunter down and walk 50 yards to the boat. And we went live with them on Texas yacht. And here's a guy who had a Hall of Fame career. And he was in his one and only year with, with uh, Dallas from the Cardinals. Uh, he replaced an injured tight end named Jay Salvi. And I asked him during that Wednesday night my broadcast, Jackie, you, you are going into Canton. Uh, you've had this amazing career. How would you like, it was his first Super how would you like to cap this off? He said, I want to make a meaningful catch in the Cowboy victory. So that's rumbling around in my mind. And Roger Staubach went back and Jackie was wide open in the end zone. The subplot of this is Roger told me later that they had practiced this play over and over and over back in Dallas, but they'd always practiced it 
from the five-yard line in. Now Landry called it in on third and goal from the 11. And Roger says he looked over. He said, no, no, no. And Tom said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so they called the play. It was a play action. And Smith broke to the left. And he was all by himself. And when he dropped the pass, what flashed in my mind was the recollection of that conversation with him about a meaningful. It would have tied the score in the third quarter, but momentum shifted on the ensuing kickoff. Randy White had a, a cast on his arm and fumbled the, the kickoff. And they tried an onside kick, and that did it. Significantly, Jackie has never been back for a Cowboy reunion. Now, he, you know, his Hall of Fame career occurred in St. Louis, but he, he was so embarrassed and humiliated by that. And, you know, the boo birds were out and uh, sadly it defined his, his one year stay in Dallas. It's a memorable moment and extraordinary recollection. Okay. Going through the, the litany of unforgettable moments where you were there, you called what I have frequently referred to as the greatest basketball game ever. And that was the Leitner game, the Leitner shot, the Duke Kentucky game where Leitner goes 10 of 10 from the floor and 10 of 10 from the line and the pass from Grant Hill and Leitner catches it, turns one way, then turns back the other, makes the shot. And Krzyzewski and Duke beat Patino and Kentucky in a game that any of us who saw it will never forget watching it. You did the game. Mm -hmm. I'd like any recollection you have of that moment. Take me to that moment where Leitner makes that shot. Alex Wolf of Sports Illustrated called me about three years after that game. And he said, I'm, I'm curious because until Leitner made that shot off the pass from Grant Hill, you had never mentioned that he was perfect from the field, perfect from the line, and had seven rebounds. And he said, you did mention that he should have been kicked out of the game midway through the second half when he put his size 14 on the midsection of a, a reserve named Amino Timberlake. And he should have been. But anyway, and I, I shrugged and I said, well, the reason I didn't mention it is the same reason that my statistician for that night is no longer working. <laughs> because, uh, and, and David, David Yagi was his name. He's passed on now. But David had this little system of grocery store counters or whatever. And he, he knew all that information. And I said to him after the game, well, I looked at the score sheet and I said, Leitner's 10 of 10 and 10 of 10 and seven rebounds. And he said, yeah. I said, why would you not share that? <laughs> and he said, well, I knew it. And I said, good luck in the rest of your career. <laughs> um, oh, gosh. <laughs> but, and, and my lingering memory of it is, is something that I've shared with Coach Shevsky. That night, the Kentucky broadcaster was a legendary radio basketball play-by-play -play guy named Kaywood Ledford. Mm -hmm. I worked the game with Lenny, Lenny Elmore and Leslie Visser. And we had Les Leslie lined up six, eight, ten feet away from Kaywood midway through the second half because Kaywood had announced that after 38 years as the voice of Kentucky basketball, he was going to retire whenever Kentucky lost. So Leslie was going to do that story, not with, I mean, Kaywood was busy, but she was going to have Kaywood in the shot. 
Well, the game was so compelling that we never, ever got to her. So that story, and we, we Lenny and I remembered to, to mention on the air, Krzyzewski went out, celebrated with his team, shook hands briefly with Patino. There was no lingering. And then he peeled off and went back to his left and went up and sat beside K. Wood Ledford before he went to the Duke radio bench. He wanted to congratulate K. Wood on a brilliant career and thank him for everything he had meant to college basketball. Very, very classy. Very classy. Extraordinary. You you really are in so many ways. I hope you realize the way I mean this, the Forrest Gump of sports in that every one of these moments as I went through your career, you were there. The next is, how many Olympics did you do? Three. You did three Olympics. One of them was... Yes. You did, you did the figure skating the year of Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. What was that like? <laughs> it was a cartoon. <laughs> it was a cartoon. Uh, I flew into Detroit the day of the attack on Tanya Harding. And I went to a cocktail party, a buffet dinner and a cocktail party at the top of the Westin Hotel in Detroit that night. And I listened on the radio. I didn't know this had happened, so I'm listening to WJR, I think, and uh, they updated. By the way, those of you who don't know, this morning at nine o'clock, uh, Nancy Kerrigan whacked on the left leg, and the famous video of her saying, "Me, why me?" Uh, and I had the vice president of the United States Figure Skating Association tell me that night, "When we get to the bottom of this, and we will, I'll guarantee you, Tanya Harding's going to be involved." And they suspected right away. And Scott did as well. But Scott's analysis was a little more technical. I mean, Tanya came from a sordid background. Her father was her mom's sixth husband. They were poor beyond the reasonable ability for most of us to understand. So she had that against her. And she was rough. And she was athletic. She completed a triple axel most then the most difficult jump in sports. But to our discredit, I think we painted a portrait of Nancy Kerrigan as the ice princess. You know, here's this. Now, she was blue collar as well, but you would never have seen that, acknowledge that, from our coverage. That was us. And we were culpable as a figure skating, commentating team and production team. But honest to God, on the night they both got, you know, Nancy was given six weeks to prove that she was ready. And Tanya sued after she was kicked off the team. She won the lawsuit. So she was allowed back on the team and came to compete. But it was a cartoon. And the afternoon that they both appeared on the Olympic arena ice for the first time together, I still vividly remember. Here were the following CBS news teams. Martha Teicher, CBS News. Uh, Bill Geist, CBS News. Mark Phillips, CBS News. John Blackburn, CBS News. Susan Spencer, CBS News. And directly below our little perch, where Tracy Wilson and Scott and I were located, Connie Chung, makeup and hair lady, and uh, a lot of lights as she was getting ready to co-anchor the evening news with Dan Rather. Overkill? 
<laughs> Perhaps. Well, and then, you know, they skated, and the next day, the ratings came in, and Neil Pilsen was our president. He said, you guys hear about the overnights? No. Well, 48.5% of television sets in the United States were tuned in. Our estimated audience was 126 million. Fascinating. Again, one of the legendary sporting events in its own way of all time. Then yeah. most people who are listening to this conversation, certainly younger people, will know you best as having been the voice of SEC football for so many years on CBS. And I suppose the most famous game, and there were so many, but you broadcast the kick six game, mm -hmm. Alabama-Auburn game, where Alabama tries to kick the field goal and the kid from Auburn catches it 109 yards from the end zone and runs it back for the touchdown, the legendary kick six, which it, 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 I said on the radio the following Monday, if it's not the greatest play in the history of sports, it can't be far away. So take me to that moment. What, what do you remember about the setup? What do you remember about seeing it happen? What do you remember about your reaction? Well, I, I, I do know this, Greeny. Uh, when I'm asked about the greatest college game I ever saw, I don't have to hesitate. That, that was it, 2013. Ironically, we had one two weeks earlier, prior to Jordan Hare. And Gary Danielson, we were on camera to sum it up. And he said, greatest finish in the history of college football. Mm. You will never, ever, ever see anything to equal what you just witnessed tonight. Two weeks. It took us two weeks. The game was tied opening minute or two of the second quarter, fourth quarter. And A.J. McCallum threw a 99-yard touchdown pass to Maury Cooper. They got the lead, held it for almost a, with only a minute to go. Auburn comes back and ties it up on the 37-yard touchdown pass to uh, Sammy Coates. Now they kick off. T.J. Yeldon ran the ball back. They got down where they had a fourth down, and uh, Nick Saban called timeout. During the timeout, Auburn changed the defender. And this is going to be, we thought he'd throw a Hail Mary or, you know, they didn't have any timeouts left. So we thought he'd do a Hail Mary. We never believed he would send out the field goals in 57 yards to a redshirt freshman who had tried two field goals the whole year. And Nick was really irritated with Kate Foster, who'd missed three of four and had one blocked in the game. So he sent this redshirt freshman. If you remember, they went back and took it seven minutes to determine whether he was out of bounds with one second left. And then Matt Austin famously came on after the seven minute deliberation and said, please put one second back on the clock, which they did. Here comes the field goal guy. What? What? So he came and wasn't a bad kick, but it goes wide. And then everything happened perfectly for uh, Auburn. Uh, Quite famously, Gary, Alabama had its field goal protection team on the field for the field goal. When Chris Davis broke for, at the 50, we all, we know both of us and awaiting uh, millions in America knew unless he stumbles and falls, he's going to score. And that was a celebratory 40 yard dash from that point in. He dived in and, and I said what I did. 
And then we laid out for a minute and 21 seconds. I'm very proud of that layout because we let Steve Milton cut. I've seen it a thousand times. So Steve Milton's our director. He did 21 camera cuts. Without us saying a word, he showed the emotion of that moment. Only then did, did Craig Silver, our producer, said, well, let's look at the replays. And I said, well, you might want to see that again. <laughs> and and Gary, at the end of the third replay, he said, well, no wonder they couldn't catch him. They had nothing but fat guys on the people. <laughs> people always use the expression, I remember where I was. I remember where I was. I was actually in a Japanese restaurant in Westport, Connecticut, where my family goes all the time. And my son's best friend was having his birthday. And so we were sitting and eating dinner. And I kept getting up and sort of sneaking away to the bar to watch the game on TV because this was close and you could see something. And that was a day where the Ohio State Michigan game had also been epic. I don't yeah. remember exactly what happened, but it had been a great day of football. And I was, I had to go to this dinner. And so I'm sneaking away, sneaking away. And I'm standing in the bar watching this when it happens. And everyone else around me screamed so much that everyone I was otherwise having dinner with came running into the bar to see what had happened. It, it really was one of those let everyone you know moments. So with the great Vern Lundquist, I saved my favorite for last. My favorite sport is golf. And my favorite sporting event of the year, every year without fail, is the Masters. I've, I've always said, if you told me I could only watch televised sports one day a year, that you were going to take away the television for 364 days, and I could only watch one day, I would pick Sunday at the Masters. And you, you have been synonymous with that event for so long. Um, in in my, my recollection, you're always on 16, which is such a wonderful hole. It's that par three on the back where extraordinary things happen. There's two calls I want to, to go to and get your recollections of. 86, Jack Nicholas at the age of 46. Right. Long past the time anyone thought he would be winning any more majors. He was already the greatest player that had ever lived is making a run on Sunday and is going to win the Masters. And he hits a putt. And again, I don't have the permission to use it. I can't believe that. Either way, I don't need the call because I have you. So, <laughs> so Jack hits a putt and it's rolling at the hole. And I mean, if I live to be 100, I can still hear you saying those famous words. Maybe, yes, sir, with a yes. little more emphasis. Yes, yes, uh, sir. A little of... Yeah. The yes, sir, just comes out of your mouth. The putt goes in, and yes, sir, just comes out of your mouth, and it is just perfect. How, how did that moment happen? I've been very, very blessed to have that moment at Augusta, uh, and it, it's kind of beneficial to one's career. <laughs> Memorable moments occur to guys like Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, Nick Price who sank that putt, it was Jack Nichols. Mm -hmm. And to this day, Mike, I, I think that 86 Masters is my favorite sporting event of anything I've ever been privileged to do because of the way it came about. A benign front nine, we were not allowed to cover the front nine in those days, but he did birdie nine and we had that on tape. Lance Barrow, who is now in his final year as executive producer of golf, he's retiring at the end of this year, uh, was the associate producer and standing behind Frank Chukinia, the executive producer, a guy that uh, we referred to as the Ayatollah. 
partly out of respect, but mostly out of fear. Uh, Lance said, hey, Frank, you yelled at the front of the truck. We've got Jack with a birdie on nine. And Frank turned around and said, you need to learn the art of storytelling. That's what we do for a living. And Jack Nicholas is no part of this story. Nine. Now he birdies 10. And Lance screwed up his courage a second time and said, uh, Frank, <laughs> we have Jack Nicholas with a birdie on, on 10. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we showed nine and 10. We followed him all through every shot. Birdie 11, bogey 12, birdie 13, part 14, 15, eagled. And then at 16, Jim Nance was in his first year of broadcasting with us. And Jack tells this story that he hit a five iron. It tells you how things have changed now. And now it's an eight or a nine. But he hit a five iron. He was bending over to get his tee. And Jack Jr. said, be good. And Jack never looked up. He just said, it is. Mm. And it rolled right over the cup. And uh, Jim had a really good line. He said, the bear has come out of hibernation. Now Jack goes to the 17th tee, and Ballesteros was the leader overnight. And he's struggling a bit. And almost before Jack, it was before Jack teed off, Ballesteros puts it in the water at 15. And so Jack knows he's struggling. He doesn't know what he's going to do. Jack pulls it left off the tee, hits his approach shot, 125 yards, and he's 12 and a half feet away. And I, as he was walking up, we went away. To, the tower then at 17 was double-decked with no shade above, no, no roof. I sat there and watched Bernhard Langer win in the driving rainstorm and liked to caught pneumonia. It was, <laughs> it was not – and now it's – pretty nice <clears throat> back then it wasn't but as jack was coming toward the green i we went away elsewhere and i thought to myself and i did i i said this is jack nicholas he's 46 years of age if he makes this he's got a chance to take the lead and i said however you react and it is reactive keep it simple and get the hell out of the way and so that was the thought process and then when the ball was a foot and a half, two feet, I said, maybe. And then with some slight heavier emphasis, yes, sir. And if you see it again, and you probably will, usually at the opening tees of, of Augusta every year, as I'm saying, yes, sir, watch Jack. He couldn't hear me, but he goes, yes, sir. And it's like a visual punctuation to the two words I said. And we talked about that. We did most recently at Augusta last year. I digressed, but it is still the greatest sporting event I think I've ever seen. Because it was Jack Nicholas, And uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful, memorable, emotional goodbye season in the SEC. And this is self-aggrandizing, but indulge me if you will. Uh, we're in Georgia, one of my favorite campuses in the SEC, favorite cities. So I was asked, we got 93,000 people in the stands, and I was asked to take a step forward before the game began to uh, see a visual tribute on the big jumbo screen. And they began with uh, Governor Nathan Deal, uh, Kirby Smart, the head coach of the Bulldogs, Jim Nance, uh, just saying goodbye and, and thanks. 
And the last one was Jack Nichols. And here's Jack. And he said, well, I did make the putt, but he did make the call. So we're going to be joined at the hip for as long as we both live. And then the PA announcer said, Vern, if you will, look down in the field. The Georgia band is spread from goal line to goal line, facing the broadcast booth. And they had spelled out, yes, sir. Mm. And the PA announcer said, let's give him a proper send-off. 93,000 people in unison looked up and screamed, yes, sir. And I said, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I've spoken with Jack, most recently at Augusta. And I said, you know, you unwittingly just added the emphasis with what you did. So, as you can tell, I'm kind of proud of that. Well, it's, it's so iconic. The other one I was going to bring up, of course, you mentioned it already briefly, is Tiger. With that putt that sits on the lip literally for what felt like two seconds. It was 1.8, Mike. You're very okay. good. So it was close. Very good. And, yeah. and, and, and only, only with Tiger Woods could it happen that the Nike swoosh is so perfectly visible as it sits there. And then it finally rolls in and you shout very loudly. In your life, have you ever seen anything like that? Again, that a little louder than that. Yeah. That's my favorite. I, I, I had planned to, I planned that one last because that, yes, the, the Nicholas uh, putt yes. is, is more um, meaningful because it just is. It comes in a more meaningful moment. But to, to just scream at the top of your lungs, in your life, have you ever seen anything like that? Where did that come from? It's instinct. You react to the moment and you try and keep it appropriate without... I mean, I, I was vocal because that moment demanded it. I don't envy these guys doing golf tournaments now with no crowd uh, or tennis or any sport. But Tiger made the chip, and it is a remarkable moment in the history of Augusta. Remarkable. I got off the tower and went back to our compound, which at Augusta is probably a half a mile from the 16th hole, we, I've got to traverse fairways and crowds and get over to the 11th. And that's how I exit the golf course and go through the nursery at Augusta and then to our compound. And I walked into uh, the PR office uh, and Leslie Ann Wade was our public relations director then. And she said, well, I've got a few phone calls for you. Hmm. And I thought, well, okay. That's not, and I picked up the phone from somebody, I don't know who it was. And he said, I got a question. I said, sure, fire away. Did you plan that? I said, yeah, I couldn't sleep last night. And I thought, what if Tiger comes to 16 and he's got a one-shot lead and he pulls an eight iron long and left and it's at the collar in front of a, a, a grate and he chips it and it goes 90 feet this way and 45 feet that way and it hangs on the lip for 1.8 seconds with a Nike logo like this. I think I'll say, in your life, have you never ever seen it? Come on. And he was deadly serious. And I thought, I couldn't disabuse him of the motion that I had scripted it. And no, you don't do that. You react. And I couldn't have made that call 25 years ago. That's a reliance upon 
the history of the sport, uh, the moment where it takes place, your awareness of your surroundings, all of those subjective things go into that. So you said that 86, Nicholas, is the greatest event. And I think- Overall, yeah, absolutely. How does or where does Tiger in 19 compare and, and how similar do you think those are in, in the scheme of things? Very comparable, Greeny, very comparable. Because Tiger fought back and he came to 16 again. And I said, as he sat up his tee shot, <laughs> in 05, he had a one-shot lead over Chris DeMarco. And he pulled an eight-iron long and left. And he chipped and the ball went in the hole. He's facing a similar circumstance right now. One shot lead, three holes to play. Uh, I'll guarantee you. I said, I think I said guarantee. This will be a more effective tee shot than the one in 05. Mm-hmm. And of course, it almost went in. And it, it almost, and they had two and a half foot putt coming back. We were at a sales dinner that night after it was over. And here's a little bit of a name drop, too. I see. Not only great athletes, but I've been around a number of celebrities uh, in film and television. And the CBS guests at that dinner were the guy from Bull, Mike Weatherby, Weatherly, uh, was NCIS, and Christopher Jackson, who played in the original cast of Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And they put Nancy and me with the two of them. And Mike said, well, what, what did you say when Tiger almost hold out 16. And I thought, believe it or not, I can't remember. So I came back to our little rental home in, in Augusta, they put us up. I did go back to the room and they were doing a replay. So Nancy said, I'm going to bed, I'm tired. And I said, I'm gonna stay up and see what I said. You know what? Perfect, I didn't say a damn thing. <laughs> I just laid out and, it, and the more I thought about it, I listened to it and I thought, well, it's about time you shut up. <laughs> and it was, it was appropriate to the moment because everybody was screaming again, Tiger has done it. And I know that victory for him. I, I, I'm, I never thought he would win another major, much less another masters. Vern, I, I, Listen, I, I can't begin to tell you how much I have enjoyed this, and I know everyone will enjoy listening to it. Anyone who appreciates um, the, the craftsmanship and the class and the integrity with which you have done it for all of these years, you're someone whose work I have admired my, literally my entire life. Um, and there's no better way I could imagine having started this season of this, this podcast and these discussions than by doing this. So thank you so very, very, very much and the very best to you and your family. And I hope that we will chat again someday because I really enjoyed this. Thank you. I, I, I would look forward to that. And again, uh, as I begin this conversation, I'm very honored that you asked me to be a part of it. Thank you. All right, so that's Vern Lundquist for week one of this season of this podcast. And I really hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. What a gentleman, what a legend, and what a delight it was to chat with him. Uh, If you like these sorts of long-form interviews, I would invite you to please subscribe and rate and review this podcast. Um, That would be very encouraging and certainly send a a message that you'd like to hear more of them as we go forward. 
and we will continue every week with a different I'm interested as we work our way through this fall football season and all the rest and in, in, in really what is going to be a fall unlike any we've ever had. So please subscribe, rate, and review this wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next week. It's I'm interested, and I'm Greeny.